Yeah, Greg Perry, the historic preservationist, 19th century upholstering styles. Vast quantities of upholstered furniture survive from the 19th century, reflecting the sheer amount produced and mass produced as the Industrial Revolution took effect. Technological advances and rising living standards made comfortable seating more widely available, not only to the increasingly prosperous middle classes, but also to the new working class market, reflecting the breadth and complexity of this social setting in an enormous variety of upholstered forms. The relatively sober mood in which the, the century begins and ends tends to be encapsulated in high Victorian exuberance, reminiscent of the 17th century love of splendor and display though achieved with considerably greater expertise. A riot of shapes, patterns, and textures expresses the high Victorian bourgeois, master of his world, secure in his power and prestige, smug in his prosperity and material possessions. The peculiar moral duality of the times is evident in the cord-lashed rolls, the button-fastened swells, and lavish curves. Sensuality, both visual and tactile, yet in the respectable context of furniture. At the same time, cheap upholstered chairs were made for the masses from poor quality materials and packed with inferior stuffings such as wool and cotton refuge, wool shavings, wood shavings, and moss. Frames are often made from unseasoned timber. I have often found tack nails with the bark still on them or made from packing crates. However poor the quality, the fact is that these chairs do still totter into upholstery workshops a hundred years later. Stuffing, such as wood shavings, have certainly proved durable, but are very unpleasant to rip out, and must have created a dreadful working condition for the original upholsters. 19th century formal angularity in upholstery. The first three decades of the century, the period summed up as Regency in England, Empire in France, and Federal in the United States, saw some truly uncomfortable upholstery. For some time, the seated furniture of the, of the fashionable was sacrificed to the supremely disciplined lines of stylized furniture, nostalgic of ancient Greece and Egypt. The squareness that had been developing in upholstered forms during the 18th century became aggressively angular. An all-in-one stitched edge previously described was honed to a blade-like fineness. A row of small knotted blanket stitches at the extreme top edge of the stitch walls gave an absolutely defined line. When well-crafted, this edge is virtually indestructible and gives superb definition. Sharp defined edges were allied to firm, flat surfaces, often shaped to the curve of the frame. First stuffing pads were firmly lashed down with stuffing ties. Top stuffing, while adequate, was not allowed to interfere with the line. Springs were not yet in general use, and the resulting seats and backs were hard and unyielding. Even when cushions were put to, the, to the, the design edge, their purpose seems often to have owed more to visual balance than to comfort. Stitched horsehair squabs 
and cushions were the feature on couches, ottomans, and sofas. The vogue for angularity actually manifested itself in square bolsters. Softer cushions were sometimes draped over the hard bolsters and base squabs. With decorative corners, cord tied, pleated, or sometimes giving the appearance of slip covers, bow tied over fixed covers. Ottomans might be further defined by decorative cords instead of cording, and bolsters, cushions, and squabs were often tasseled. Fringe was again fashionable, but applied in the delicate trellis pattern. The softer line of 19th century. As the 19th century advanced into the Victorian era, changing fashions led to a desire for informality, a more relaxed and comfortable style than the self-conscious angularity of the Regency style. One major advance in upholstery technique that brought a whole new dimension to comfort and design and seating was the introduction of reliable springing. The use of springs became increasingly widespread during the 1830s, with this gradual shift in emphasis toward comfort. Springing sprung seats of various kinds are recorded as far back as the late 18th century. But their use was limited until improvements in the quality of steel and advances in manufacturing techniques made it possible to produce suitably resilient models in quantity. It was only toward the middle of the 19th century that upholsters perfected techniques for efficiently tying in strings, very much as we do today, and for preventing the springs from moving around independently in a seat. With the attendant risk of chafing and snapping the adequate twine ties and making the seat lumpy. While on the one hand, cushion upholsters were incorporating springs into their best quality handcrafted pieces. At the other end of the market, sprung seats formed one stage in a production line that put moderately priced, reasonably comfort seating within reach of huge new sectors of the population. By the late 19th century, Framed seats of springs were being factory-made in units with steel wire defining the shape of the seat. The ingenious use of springs allowed the skills and imaginative upholster full reign and enabled him to create an extraordinarily large range of convoluted shapes on a single frame. Seats, arms, and inside backs were sprung and very soon double springing was combined with clever use of sizes and gauges to produce some amazing creations. Such springing added considerably to the comfort of a chair. However, tightly packed the stuffing in the buttons and channels. So let's talk about buttoning and toughening in the 19th century upholstery. As the tailor line of upholstery became softer, tufting became fashionable again as a method of securing stuffing. From the late 1830s, rosettes of twisted thread of covered buttons replaced the tufts. A method has now become known as deep buttoning, though, paradoxically, it is shallow compared to the pleated tufting. Small buttons were tied off through a cover cut larger than its base, with thicker stuffing below creating a soft, larger-than-its-base look, a cushiony look. Many surviving photographs of this period closely show deep buttoning, its casual air with a puckered and almost baggy-looking top cover. It is a definite style and should be recreated 
in, if, if the frame of your chair dates to that time. Unfortunately, many upholsters today scathingly dismiss this as a shoddy example of pleated tufting and reupholster using the latter, misguidingly correcting what they take to be the poor workmanship of the original upholster and, in doing so, destroying the authenticity and charm of the style's comfortable informality. Rules that have been learned unquestionably in training can be difficult to disregard and are all too often put routinely and inappropriately into practice. Buttoning provides one with a good opportunity of first studying the shape and overall look to be achieved and then using it appropriately to uh, the upholstering techniques that will achieve it. Curved opulence in the 19th century upholstering. The mid-Victorians considered that the ornamentation of any surface in any material, wood, metal, ceramics, etc., enhanced its opulence and thus bestowed, bestowed prestige on the owner. Upholstery was no exception, no longer merely an equal partner with its frame. It soon dominated, and in many cases consumed, the frame enveloping every vestige of its structure, seat, arm, and back edges were not simply straight or curved, but had pillow edges, Bible edges, scrolled, rolled, and gathered edges. In many instances, edges that disappeared entirely. Pleated tufting of 19th century furniture. By the late 1840s, a system of deep first and second stuffing into which buttons could be fastened had been developed. It is commonly thought that pleated tufting evolved as a functionable necessity to hold the very thick stuffing in place. But it was quite the reverse. A technique was devised for purely stylistic ends. Stuffing is held very firmly within its bridle, stuffing and stitching ties, and requires nothing more to keep it in place. Indeed, the first stuffing pad has to be cut to create the depth required for true pleated tufting. The area at the top cover was necessarily greater, in a carefully calculated ratio than that of the sackcloth or burlap to which it was held. The excess fabric was dispersed into regular diagonal folds, and the edges were tacked off clean. Smooth and unpuckered, with pleats of material running vertically and horizontally from the button to the edge rails. In the, in the 1860s and 70s, pleated tuffing became immensely popular and reached extremes of sophistication and skill on the part of the upholster. Although we speak in terms of comfort in describing 19th century seat furniture, much of it would have been very firm. Padding was indeed deep, but was stuffed firmly like and buttressed quite rigidly within its corset of buttons, rolls, and cords. Like a good saddle, a firmly buttoned chair would have to be worn in. In order to recreate this style, one must really appreciate the spirit of the time. Restrained pleating tufting with a flat fried egg look may constitute technical accuracy, but the chair will not boast or sing or even hum. It will be consigned to ill-befitting anonymity. Many periods have a characteristic curving line, but the Victorian curve was a great swell of no restrained understatement, but an indulgence in opulence and sensuality. 
So be aware that you are recreating curves and valleys in which the cords and buttons will nestle invitingly. They are not merely devices to fix the top cover and disguise seams. Uh, 19th century upholstery, iron framing. As upholstery became more diverse in shape and style, so did the chair frames themselves. Seating for every imaginable purpose and every shape and size was created. Simple formal elegance was gone. Chairs littered rooms like bric-a-brac and many of them unsuited for any purpose. Ottomans became incredible confections of giant wedding cakes. Ascending tiers of valances, rolls, buttons, and channels, topped with cascading flowers and plants. There were conversation seats, love seats, prayer chairs, boudoir chairs, some in ridiculously frivolous shapes made possible by advances in metal technology. Iron frames, sometimes termed wire frames, bent into exaggerated curves or bolted to the timber seat frames creating many shapes that would have been seen earlier impracticable or impossible to produce in timber. The more sensible and restrained of these chairs, with their well-fitting lumbar rolls and gently yielding wire backs, accommodate the sitter very happily. Because these metal frames are indestructible, many are still in use today. Chairs and sofas were often bolted together, end-to-end, back-to-back, in circular and serpentine shapes. Many of these have since been separated, but still bear the metal fixtures, which must be disguised in some way. 19th century top cover upholstery. The -the over-the-top effects of texturing were further exaggerated by the use of rich, heavily patterning colored top fabrics. Many of these fabrics remain on the chair frames, usually faded and worn, But when the time comes for repair and replacements and their century-old creases are released at tack-off points and around buttons, the original brilliant colors are clearly visible. Garnish aniline dyes are also colored and needlepoint designs worked on intent or cross-stitch are known as Berlin woolwork. These were often used to cover upholstery. The same colors were found in the carpet panels woven to fit upholstered furniture for popular consumption. Again, tucked away sections have to be seen so that their vivid colors can be appreciated. More sober was hair cloth woven from horsehair and usually in black. It was extremely serviceable and in my opinion very smart, but it could never, I fear, have been very comfortable. Those black horsehair-covered sofas in the front parlor hardly sounded inviting at all. The changing line of 19th century upholstered furniture. With the confidence of the high Victorians, upholstered forms have swept up the crescendo of stuffing and springing, enveloped in a profusion of buttons, corded rolls, scrolls, fringes, tassels, and valances. Buttoning mania was receding by the 1880s, although it remained very popular. But upholstery retained its ornate opulence. Now smooth, non-buttoned areas on backs and seats were bordered and shaped by stuffed rolls and channels, themselves lusciously gathered, buttoned, and corded. The busy effect was often exaggerated by contrasting fabrics. Outside backs and arms, borders, quartered rolls, and valances might be in a plain velvet. 
while harmonizing brocade or damask covered internal surfaces. Almost every conceivable finishing decoration was used, wherever possible. It seems all the same chair, as in the estate chairs of the 17th century, swaying tassel layer fringes, corded in ropes, gimps, and rosette tassels, provided the sumptuous finale to the already extravagant production. Not everyone, however, subscribed to such lavish ornamentation. By the last quarter of the 19th century, the very excesses of the period had inspired a number of reactions in the direction of cleaner lines and simpler styles. A new form of Victorian eclecticism incorporated ideas from the aesthetic movement. Influenced by Japanese designs, a nostalgia for the 18th century was manifested in Queen Anne after Chippendale and various other vaguely classical styles. The English arts and crafts movement paralleling in America by the mission style, was making its impact. The simpler designs of Morris and Company appealed initially to the connoisseurs of handcrafted items, but eventually grew to have greater influence in the designers such as Goodwin, Voicy, and Macintosh, allowed for only the cleanest and simplest upholstery lines achieved by sculpturing and stuffing into gentle curves or by discreet springing neither involving any real innovation or refinement of upholsters' techniques. French Art Nouveau designs such as Gallet and Morgellet were creating rithering plant-like structures with sinuously carved frames and um, sympathetic upholstery which flowed into the fluid outlines. In mass manufacture too, lighter frames supported sleeker upholstery. Own on many slender frames with narrow tapering legs. The gross overstuffing of the previous era gave way to virtually anorexic and seats were merely pin stuffed. Sturdier furniture was sensibly upholstered in proportion to the frame. As the excesses of the 19th century waned and as heavy rich fabrics, swagger draperies, fringes, tassels, and clutter abated, the lighter colors and fabrics were more simply finished with brass nails and gimp. Greg Perry, signing out.